Podcastle, episode 99 for April 13th, 2010. The Hag Queen's Curse by M.K. Hobson. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and I'd like to take you on a trip down memory lane, back in time to the late 80s and 90s, back when I was in high school. In those days, I remember a brand of clothing that came out called Counterculture. You can find t-shirts in all the hot spots in Southern California, surf shops at Huntington Beach Beer, trendy stores in Orange County's malls. Pretty soon all the cool kids are sporting counterculture t-shirts, which means I wasn't. Not that my choice in clothing made me some kind of anti-establishment Tyler Durden, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the irony of something called counterculture being so mainstream, so popular. I suppose it's nothing new. I mean, it's always been popular in America to be something of an outsider, literally since the American Revolution. It's a proud political tradition, too, so much so that in our last presidential election, one candidate proclaimed himself a maverick and the other called himself a Washington outsider. And I don't kid myself thinking that this is just really an American institution either, but we're pretty good at cherry-picking some of the world's biggest rebels and appropriating them as icons. We'll take Che Guevara's face and slap it on t-shirts. Jesus Christ? We'll slap him up on the silver screen where you can watch him be crucified while you munch your large popcorn and slurp your tasty beverage. We'll import Adamant, mix him up with Keith Richards, and give you Jack Sparrow. Sorry, Captain Jack Sparrow. And if we're Disney, we'll attempt to put his face on tubes of toothpaste. Thank God for Johnny Depp, right? Anyway, this brings us to this week's Podcastle story about a wicked pirate and a Navy warlock, punk rock, and fast food. It's called The Hag Queen's Curse, and it's written by the fabulous M.K. Hobson. You may recognize M.K. Hobson as one of our frequent kick-ass co-hosts here at Podcastle, and if you haven't had a chance to check out Hotel Astarte here or God Juice at Escape Pod, I highly recommend you do so. Her debut novel, The Native Star, is coming out later this year from Bantam Spectre, and oh dudes, I can't wait to get my hands on this one and see it hit the mainstream. The story is narrated for you by Christiana Ellis. Christiana has a number of projects in the potosphere, including Christiana's Shallow Thoughts, which she calls a daily mini-cast of serene surrealism, Space Casey, a humorous science fiction audio drama miniseries, and her comedic fantasy novel, Nina Kimberly the Merciless, which was nominated for a 2006 Parsec Award and a Podcast Peer Award. Nina Kimberly is now available from Dragon Moon Press, and you can still find it online at ninakimberly.com. So grab a pina colada and some curly fries, pop in a mixtape, and enjoy the story. The Hag Queen's Curse by M.K. Hobson November 1798, The Black Cat Tavern, Fells Point, Maryland Hearth light flickers on soot-grimy half-timbered walls, Wind and hail beat against the thick bullseye quarter panes. The icy arms of the Hag Queen of Fells Point, bitter and jealous, drawing men of the sea into the warmth of the tavern to surround her, for she craves amusement. The Hag Queen, Mother Grax, Old Salt Sea Sarah, she is known by a hundred names. In skirts of rough burlap, looped up with braids of kelp, she sits at a table in the back of the black cat, surrounded by a half-dozen men, captains and mates, fishermen and dock workers. Her face is brown as day-old coffee, wrinkle-chasmed, sea-green eyes glower ill-temper. The men try to amuse her with songs and chanties, flashing smiles of varying brightness, flattering her with all of the same wit and charm they would use with a pretty young barmaid with apple-cheeked dimples and round heels. Their song is desperate. Their face is worried and anxious. Who knows how long the sea hag will demand amusement? An evening... A week of evenings? How much money will they lose in that time? How many fish uncaught? How many vessels unplundered? How many crates left lashed by rain and spray on the storm-creaking docks? Lamb's wool, Mother Grax demands, her voice echoing like thunder off an unseen cliff face. 
Lamb's wool! The call rises in unison from three different men waving silver coins. Strong old ale is drawn and spiced with nutmeg, ginger, and sugar, and set to toast on the glowing red hob. Lamb's wool, the favorite sop of the hag queen. It is brought to her as quickly as the fire will allow, and set before her carefully, swirling steam bathing her cold, ancient skin. She breathes in the spices appreciatively. But before she can lift the smoke-smudged tankard to her withered lips, the door bursts open, banging against the wall with all the force of the storming winds outside. A pair of men tumble in on a howling blast of brine spray. There is the grapple of fists and the flash of a jeweled knife. Cursed hide, pirate! Poxy navy blackguard! They roll over and over each other, each trying to gain the upper hand. They crash into the hag queen's table, knocking her hob-warmed ale to the ground, splashing her fish-gut-stained linen apron. Horrified silence falls heavy as a press-gang bludgeon. All eyes are on Navy, his long blue coat soaked and tangling around his knees as he raises the glimmering dagger to plunge it into the pirate's heart. Stop! The hag queen of Fell's Point brings down the oar with a rifle-sharp report. Mutterings of pirate and Navy fall silent. She looks between them slowly. Her eyes hold the pirates first. A hide pirate in an old body. You will have to change soon. Already you are trembling and not just from cold. Her oyster-colored eyes flicker sideways. And at your throat a fresh young man wearing the uniform of the new Federal Navy. Rumi eyes narrow as she sees more deeply. A young man with craft around him. I am Second Lieutenant John Rogers of the Constellation, Navy announces, lifting his chin proudly. Warlock First Class. The Hag Queen's lips twist. Warlock, she says. Rogers twists the knife against the pirate's throat. I have orders to bring this miscreant to the Navy's justice. The Hag Queen's eyes narrow meanly, and there are ugly flickers in her eyes, like the pincers of a hundred tiny crabs tearing apart a bloated fish on the sea bottom. Be that as it may, the Hag Queen says softly, you've upset my lamb's wool. Ale, madam? The young warlock's eyes blaze with indignation. You are addressing an officer of the United States Navy. Your ale doesn't matter one whit to me. Ah, misery, the pirate mutters as the hag queen's face contorts with rage. Ultima Thule, she commands, bringing the oar down with a clap of thunder. 1986, Salties, Newport, Oregon. Colored shadows from the square-tiled disco floor flash against finger-grimed black walls. There is a mirror ball and a pair of cute bartenders who are always squabbling. Two tall martial stacks in each corner thump out a beat you can feel all along Bay Boulevard. Jeff and Kat come down to Salty's every Saturday night because in Newport, Oregon in 1986, there's nothing else to do on a Saturday night if you haven't the taste for pickup trucks, country music, and mullets. Always the same people. Skinny, transient boys with names like Etienne and Colby. They spasm on the dance floor, get up intrigues in dark corners, Pass little plastic packages of white powder from hand to hand. Always the same music. Adam Ant, Depeche Mode, Dead or Alive, Culture Club, The Cure. Always the same table. 
the wobbly dark one in the back with the red glass candle holder. Cat likes to dip her black fingernails in the melted wax and then peel it off like dead skin. It creeps Jeff out. Jeff dresses preppy in pastel izods and pressed chinos. He drinks pina coladas and saves the paper umbrellas. Cat wears black, sips Manhattans through crimson-painted lips, and smokes clove cigarettes in a long jeweled holder. Every Saturday, it's the same. Until the pirate. They even have the same fight. For the past year, they've been saving up cash to get down to San Francisco. Jeff's got friends down there, and there are jobs to be had in record stores, and there are bigger and better clubs, and bigger and better opportunities. Cat's dreams for San Francisco are bizarre, but vague. She's thinking of hitting big in the roller derby, or as a professional dominatrix. Jeff's ambitions are more specific, but only slightly less bizarre. He wants to meet the accountant of his dreams and open up an HR block tax preparation outlet with him. Divergent, indeed diametrically opposed, dreams notwithstanding, they both agree escaping to San Francisco is the way to go. Toward that end, Jeff takes exactly 20% of his small paycheck and puts it into a savings account at U.S. Bank. Until recently, Kat has been doing the same, but lately things haven't been going quite as she planned. So, are we going to make a deposit this month? Jeff broaches the subject like a mommy asking a stubborn child whether she's washed her hands after using the toilet. Yeah, Cat scratches the side of her nose. About that. Jeff flicks his paper umbrella with his fingernail, hisses a pent-up breath. <sighs> Brady? Cat blushes. She's embarrassed, but she hides it under anger. Yeah, Brady, she says. Jeff opens his mouth to start to say something. He's going to tell her off like he always does, like he's been doing every Saturday night for the past six months. But then he doesn't. He just shakes his head. It makes Kat's heart shudder. We'll get to San Francisco, Jeff, she says, eventually. But these things take time. We can't just up and go. Yes, we can, Jeff says. If we have money, we'll have money. Not as long as Brady's around. Jeff looks at her for a long time and then says with great gravity, I love you, Cat, but not enough to get stuck here waiting for you. Jeez, she rolls her eyes, gives him a teasing half-smile, tries to bury the awkward moment in camp. Somebody's been hitting the falcon crest again. Lighten up, Jane Wyman. Whatever, Jeff says. She touches his hand and looks deep into his brown eyes and thinks, Really? No fooling, I promise. It's a special bond they've had since the fourth grade. This ability to speak mind to mind. And it's always been their version of makeup sex, the most intimate connection possible between fag and hag. But even in his thoughts, Jeff bites back bitterly. Whatever. Cat pulls her hand back as if she's been singed. Typically, at the end of this particular fight, Cat storms off into the bathroom to fix her lipstick. The finger quotes are Jeff's. He once employed them with amusement. Now they are used with some dismay. This time, however, instead of storming, she reels, pushing past a pair of beautiful boys in plaid shirts. Things aren't broken between them. There are ways of fixing any problem. They'll get to San Francisco. Jeff will see. Cat goes to bolster her delusions. Jeff fumes and begins calculating how long it will take to get to San Francisco without her. Adventure is forestalled, 
as it always is, until the pirate. About two seconds after Cat runs off into the bathroom, a pirate jostles down into the seat next to Jeff, wobbling the table, threatening to topple Jeff's carefully nursed pina colada. The guy has gone the whole nine leagues. Face paint, little satin bows in his hair, a waistcoat with acres of gold-braided trim and brilliantly gold buttons. Adam Ant, bless his heart, has a lot to answer for. Jeff wishes that Cat were close enough to share this catty observation mind to mind, but all cynicism and mockery soon vanish as the pirate's golden eyes meet his and they dance with spinning silver coins of mirror-ball light. They brim with greed and lust and hunger, with promises of devastation and devouring. The pirate licks his lips slowly, and Jeff is suddenly very glad that Cat is in the bathroom, because even though their bond is very special, it sure as hell isn't special enough for the thoughts he's having now. Raining hard out there, huh? Jeff's voice has gone all weak. Besides the smell of cold November rain, the pirate's long woolen coat smells of old cedar and creosote and fishy mud, like he went down clamming under the pier before coming to cruise salties. You are looking to plunder some booty? The pirate stares at him like he's an idiot, which he is, for trotting out the worst pickup line in the history of pickup lines. Show me your feet, the pirate says. Jeff exhales, saved by the foot fetish, he thinks, wondering if he should be relieved or alarmed. Jeff extends a foot from under the table, sliding off one of his black tennis shoes as he does. He places it gently in the pirate's lap. The pirate lays one cool hand on it, fingers stroking the sock, feeling along the instep. The pirate nods with satisfaction. Come with me, he says. There is a dark alley in back. Jeff's heart gives a leap, and he's just getting his shoe back on when the pirate crumples in pain, doubling over. He moans in agony. His face waxes pale and clammy. Jeff lays a hand on his back. Are you all right? Do you want something to drink? Hot rum. The pirate breathes out longingly, licking his lips as if the words themselves taste good. How could I not have known? Jeff is about to lift his hand to call out to one of the bartenders when the pirate peers at him, his gaze like light filtering down to the ocean floor from high above. But there is no time. Suddenly, Jeff smells something else layered over the smell of wet wool and old cedar and creosote. The smell of rot, human rot, flesh decaying from within. Jeff pulls back, but the pirate lays a bony hand on his arm. In a low, insinuating voice, the pirate mutters, Prepare to be boarded. In any other circumstance, Jeff might have felt relieved that the pirate actually came up with an even worse pickup line than he did. But everything goes black, and he doesn't feel anything. Cat comes out of the bathroom, crimson lipstick edged Clarabeau crisp, sniffing and wiping her nose. She feels much brighter and more elegant than she did when she went in. She has wrangled the promise of drama, excitement, and thrills out of a little plastic bag in her vintage 1940s beaded purse. She's forgiven Jeff for harping on uncomfortable details. She's forgiven Brady for being an uncomfortable detail. She's forgiven everybody everything. Then she notices the ruckus around the table. Her table. Her and Jeff's table. Alarm rings in her newly brass skull. There's a body stretched out on the floor. One of the squabbling bartenders, who calls himself Patty and is an EMT by day, bends over a still form. But the guy stretched out on the floor isn't Jeff. It's some half-baked new romantic tweaker she's never seen before. 
He's pale and clammy, with cheeks like hollowed-out bowls. "'Who's he?' Cat asks Patty, as she looks around for Jeff. "'It's not like Jeff to let strange pirates pass out under their table.' "'He's dead, that's who,' Patty says. He holds up the pirate's ring-sparkling hand. When Patty releases it, it remains stiff and frozen, clutching for the sky. "'See that? Rigor mortis.' That doesn't happen until you're dead for hours. But I just saw him talking to Jeff. Where did Jeff go? I don't know. He was here just a minute ago. Damn it, turn that shit off. Have a little respect. Jesus. Some wag has punched up stand and deliver, and people have started dancing again. Patty huffs angrily to the bar and jerks the jukebox plug out of the wall. He flips on fluorescent ceiling lights, bathing the bar in unflattering brilliance. He ignores groans and complaints and ostentatiously hand-shaded eyes as he picks up the phone. Cat scans the dance floor, hoping to see Jeff's lanky form among the complainers, but in the newly bright light, her eyes are drawn back to the dead pirate guy. She can't help noticing that he's wearing the awesomest pair of thigh-high leather boots she has ever seen. She bends for a closer look. She notices a broken piña colada glass, the spilled remnants of the sweet drink, a paper umbrella, unsaved. And then the pirate crumbles, collapses, caves in like a carelessly touched mummy, leaden gray dust mixing with pineapple juice and coconut milk and rum. For God's sake! Patty screeches from across the bar, covering the phone's mouthpiece with a trembling hand. Cat, what the hell did you do? I was just looking at his boots, Cat whispers, pulling back. Suddenly, she is really worried about Jeff. She throws on her chain-jangling spiked motorcycle jacket and heads outside into the cold November slop. The arch of the Yukina Bay Bridge rises dark at the end of the road, red and white lights blinking across it. At 3 a.m., the lights are infrequent. She sees Jeff immediately. Strangely enough, it appears he's in the middle of kicking the shit out of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That is, there's a guy curled up on the ground in front of him in a tattered white wig and a long, narrow-shouldered coat, and Kat's never seen him before unless you count that one time she and Jeff rented Amadeus, because the guy looks like Tom Hulse half-dead during the magic flute. Jesus, this Saturday just keeps getting weirder. Jeff is soaked to the skin. A heavy piece of wood drags his arms down. He's breathing hard, flushed with pleasurable exertion. This is Ultima Thule, then? Jeff stops trying to kill Mozart long enough to roar the question. This is where the hag has banished us for our disturbance? How are we to return, warlock? How is the curse to be broken? I know not. Mozart hides under his arms, and his voice is muffled. I swear it! Jeff sneers a scornful laugh. That is to be your last lie, navy. He says, I've commandeered me a bonny new vessel, strong enough to kill you, and I won't miss my chance a second time. Jeff, stop it! Cat tries to pull him back, wrapping both her hands around his upper arm. His skin is cold and rain-slicked, and she can feel the familiar outlines of his mind. But something is very wrong. Jeff is there, but he is tiny, small, imprisoned. Something else is filling the space of his mind. Something bitter and old and cruel. Something not Jeff. Not Jeff at all. Cat! Jeff howls. Cat, help me! He growls and strikes back at her with the wood in his hand. She falls hard, jacket chains clanking on wet pavement. Jeff takes another step toward her, wood raised, but Mozart is on his feet now. He has something in his hand that glints. Back, you foul creature! He lifts it before himself. Jeff freezes. He stands stock still for a long time, and then lets the wood drop from his hands. It clatters in the still ocean-scented darkness. Until dawn, warlock, 
Jeff whispers, inclining his head. Then he turns and vanishes into the darkness. It becomes quickly apparent that Mozart blew his last ounce of strength on that heroic gesture. With a moan, he crumples to the ground, cradling his gut. Cat bends over him, sees that his face is bleeding. Do you want me to get help? Why was he... Aid, Mistress Witch. He painfully raises a hand and makes the heavy metal devil horn sign, index finger, pinky, and thumb extended. I beg thee, aid. What, you need an emergency infusion of Ozzy Osbourne? I am a warlock, he continues, voice unsteady with pain. A second lieutenant in the service of the United States Navy, under the direct command of Secretary Benjamin Stoddart. I am in pursuit of the Hyde Pirate, Captain Flaneur. The American Mantic Code of 1784 requires that you render me aid, if you be good. He peers at her outfit of unbroken black, the dozens of silver rings on her fingers. His eyes linger on the upside-down pentagram around her throat. He frowns slightly. And if you be ill, then I pray thee inform me now that I might destroy you. She gives him the slow, skeptical up-and-down she learned from a drag queen named Frank. Are you good? He hisses through clenched teeth. Mostly, she grins. The man nods. Forgive my rough manner. The magic with which the hag sent us here was powerful and indelicate, and my senses have not yet accustomed themselves to this place. He squints at the harsh white streetlight above them, at the cars flying over the Yakina Bay Bridge, and his pale brow wrinkles apprehensively. Ultima Thule. The hag's curse is truly formidable. Hag's curse? She's crouched down before him, one elbow propped on her knee. What is that? Some kind of acid? How much did you take? Cat has formulated a theory. She's good at formulating theories. Newport is always getting bad acid from California. This guy is obviously some freaked-out history major from a college town. Corvallis, maybe. So, this freaked-out history major with a head full of bad acid just happens to be in Newport. God only knows why. And he comes into Salty's. And for whatever reason, maybe he thinks Jeff is cute... He drops some bad acid in Jeff's pina colada, and Jeff freaks out and beats the shit out of him. All while she's in the bathroom for five minutes, fixing her lipstick. Nope. No use. Even bringing bad acid and history majors into the mix can't account for the mysterious dust-collapsing pirate. Her head is beginning to ache. Her Saturday night has gotten too traumatic. She digs in her bag for her jarums. Her fingers brush the little plastic packet of white powder. She fondles it longingly. But then there's the chirp of a siren and bright spinning lights speeding down the hill toward the bayfront. Cat startles, closing her vintage beaded purse quickly. Cat hopes that Patty has the presence of mind to snag those awesome boots before he lets the cops in with yellow tape and a dustbuster. So many lights, the man murmurs. Quickly, Cat helps the warlock, or acid head, or history major, or whatever, to his feet. If he's walking, maybe he won't pass out. He leans against her. She gives him a shake. Hey, you got a name? John Rogers, he mumbles. Second Lieutenant. Constellation. Serial number... Then he passes out. Cat sighs. So much for keeping him walking and talking. Luckily, Cat is a sturdy girl, and the warlock, or acid head, whatever, is really rather slight. She picks him up and slings him over her shoulder, tucking her purse under her arm. By the way, I am not a witch, she mutters, as she makes her way up Hatfield Drive. Back at her apartment, Cat settles the warlock on her broken-down couch so she can get a better look at him. He's wearing a long, narrow-chested coat, dyed a dark woad blue, 
It's got silver epaulettes and tarnished brass buttons. A grimy, cobweb-colored peruke is twisted on his skull, showing cropped, curling brown hair underneath. He looks a few oranges short of scurvy, but he's not entirely uncute. But his boots, Cat notes, aren't anywhere near as cool as the pirate's. He begins to stir under her scrutiny. She throws a blanket over him and goes to get him coffee, aspirin, and the bong in that order. What did he mean until dawn? she asks. If dawn's light touches you in Ultima Thule, then never shall you return. Those were the last words the hag said to us. Having given him the coffee and the aspirin, she retrieves her baggie of weed from its carefully chosen hiding place. With Brady around, it's the only way she can keep any for herself. The lighter and bong are impenetrable to the warlock. She decides to teach by example, bubbling up a deep breath of acrid smoke. General Washington's herb? He sniffs as Cat releases a lungful. In Ultima Thule? The books tell us that there is no manner of enjoyment in this place, only tedium and stagnation. She hands him the bong, and he proves an apt pupil. After a couple of deep inhalations, he melts back into the couch, obviously feeling much better. He'll have some damn fine bruises, but it doesn't seem that Jeff has broken any of his bones. Just associating the concepts Jeff and breaking his bones heightens the unpleasant feeling of having stepped sideways out of reality, a feeling that's been building all night. Cat lights a jarum and is about to ask for a detailed and satisfactory explanation when Brady comes out of the bedroom, scratching his belly. Brady is smack-skinny and orange-haired, with a face that is prematurely creased and arms that have veins like fuse cord. His tattoos glow in the light of the fridge. Dude, we're almost out of beer, he grumbles by way of a hello. He pads out into the front room, regarding the warlock as he takes a deep swig. Who the hell is this? Second Lieutenant John Rogers, the warlock offers eyeing Brady warily. He touches an insignia over his breast. Warlock First Class, United States Navy. Brady snorts a laugh and beer comes out of his nose. He wipes it off with his hand, flicks droplets off of his fingers onto the carpet. Dude, you got the fruitiest friends. Warlock, fuck yeah. There is nothing unusual about my profession. Rogers glares at Brady as he exhales smoke in a thin stream. When he speaks again, his voice is raspy. Forgive me, but I have not had the favor of your name, Mistress Witch. I assume that it is not... Dude. Cat, she says quickly. Kathleen. So, what, you're from medieval times? Knights and castles and shit like that? Brady sits down next to Rogers, grabbing the bong and the baggie. Cat represses a sigh. That's the last she'll see of that bag. Rogers does not favor Brady with an answer, but rather inclines his head toward Cat with extravagant formality. Mistress Kathleen, he says, speaking her name with the gravitas of a title. I am pleased to know you. I have been given the duty of apprehending the Hyde Pirate Captain Flaneur, and I would appreciate your help in achieving that end. Hyde Pirate? I, a barbarous rogue, a thieving wretch. He does not steal wooden vessels. Rather, he steals vessels of flesh, robs them, leaves them destitute. So, he stole Jeff's body. Rogers nods. He has seized the bodies of rich merchants from Charleston to Boston, looting them of all their earthly possessions, even down to the gems on their fingers. Brady coughs a cackle. It degenerates into a hacking fit. (coughs) If he stole Jeff's body, he's got the wrong vessel of flesh. He finally manages. Fucking Jeff's a fucking manager at fucking Arby's, dude. Arby's? Rogers looks at Cat. Jeez, I could really go from some curly fries right now, Brady adds. Got any cash on you, Cat? Cat takes a drag on the clove cigarette, 
blows smoke in Brady's direction. The point is, she says to Rogers, Jeff isn't rich. He hasn't got gem one. So why did this Hyde pirate steal his body? Captain Flaneur took it because he had no choice. He can only stay in a body for thirteen cursed hours before he must enter a new one. When the hag banished us from Fell's Point, Captain Flaneur had already been in his previous body for the allotted time. When we woke in Ultima Thule, he was desperate. He went into the first place that smelled of men. Well, there's probably not a place in Newport that smells more like men than Salty's. Cat taps a black-glossed fingertip on her lower lip. But who's this hag? And what's this Ultima Thule you keep talking about? This isn't Ultima Thule, it's Newport, Oregon. Ultima Thule is not a specific place, Rogers clarifies. Rather, it's a definition, a designation. Ultima Thule is the most desolate, tedious, and forsaken place in space and time. The furthest reach from true civilization and culture that has ever existed or will ever exist. It is a prison of lost souls, a trap for the unfortunate. Jesus, you and that faggot Jeff, the same bullshit, Brady says. Cheap drugs from California, cops that can't find their asses with both hands. Newport is fucking awesome, dude. He takes another hit of the bong, then wedges it between his legs like a monstrous erection. Under other circumstances, Cat might find this incredibly sexy and transgressive. At this moment, however, she just finds it creepy and gross. So, <laughs> you're a magician or whatever? Brady says, peering at Rogers. Show me a trick. Oh, gladly, Rogers says. He makes a strange sign with his hands, culminating in a cutting motion across his chest and a few odd finger wiggles. Incisio carnisium. Vos irreverens baro. There's a strange moment, like the whole world folding and then unfolding in an instant, and the smell of brimstone. And suddenly, Brady's got a shirt on. It's a long, loose linen shirt like something Fabio would wear on the cover of a Harlequin romance novel. Cool! Cat leaps forward to finger the material. Rogers smiles proudly. Brady, on the other hand, is doing his best impression of being unimpressed. Yeah, what the fuck ever, he says, swatting Cat's hand aside. Fucking fruity friends. Jesus. Truly, Mistress Kathleen, I regret that you must inhabit such an inhospitable place. Rogers climbs to his feet, straightens his torqued peruke, and brushes stray flakes of chiba from the front of his coat. I thank you for the restoratives you have offered me, but time is short. I must return to a brighter period, and I must take Captain Flaneur with me so that he can be submitted to the Navy's justice. Yeah, nice meeting you, Brady says. Don't let the door hit your magical ass on the way out. Wait! Cat catches the warlock by a frayed elbow. You can't just leave. What about Jeff? How are you going to find him? To find him will not be difficult, Rogers says. To capture him will be harder, and to return with him will be hardest of all. Start with easy, she says. I must return to the tavern where Captain Flaneur boarded him and retrieve the dust of his former body. With it, I can scry where he is gone. She glances at her watch. 3.30 a.m. They'll be closed by now, she says, if they didn't close early on account of all the weirdness. I'll go down there with you. Maybe they left the bathroom window open or something. Your help would be invaluable. That is, if you've nothing better to... Oh, no, Cat says quickly. Not at all. Nothing. No, kids... Brady's voice is a condescending wheedle as he puts himself between them. Cat is surprised to realize she and the warlock were actually standing very close together. But now Brady's in between them, putting his arms around their shoulders and pulling them in even closer. He puts his arm especially tight around the warlock's neck and gives it a wrench that's unconvincingly companionable. If there's anyone in Newport, Oregon, who can bust into a bar at 3 a.m., it's me. And besides, we're out of beer. Cat frowns. Brady's gotten his mitts on her hidden stash of pot. She expected him to stay home and gloat over it. She kind of wishes he would. 
There is a similar sentiment in the warlock's eyes. After a long, awkward silence, the dissuasive nature of which Brady seems uniquely impervious to, she shrugs her way from under his embrace. Whatever, she mutters. Sweet! He reaches for his camo jacket with the black flag logo on the back. Let's stop by Arby's on the way. I'm like fucking dying for some curly fries. Brady is really good at picking locks. He swears it's a skill he learned from his dad, who learned it from his friend, who lived in a trailer with this guy who'd escaped from the state pen in Salem. But he likes kicking things more. And besides, he doesn't have enough money for a real lock-picking kit. So when they get to the back door of Salty's, he just lifts his Doc Martin and lets fly at the thin plywood. I could have done that, the warlock mutters. Brady says as he steps through the wreckage. A boot's not the only thing that will break a door, the warlock says, fingers twitching. Cat pinches him to distract his attention. Jesus, what a Saturday. Best friend possessed by the spirit of an 18th century pirate. Boyfriend about to throw down with a warlock. And, she looks down into the grease-stained box in her hand, she's all out of curly fries. She flicks on the fluorescent lights and they look around. Brady leaps over the bar and heads straight for the beer taps, sticking his head under one and pulling the big plastic handle. As Cat predicted, the floor has been recently dust-busted, but there is a sticky film of piña colada with dust stuck to it in the shape of a pirate body. She goes behind the counter and opens the secret cupboard where Patty keeps a stash of porn and Reese's peanut butter cups. Bingo. The dustbuster is there. And, she squeals with delight, so are the boots. She reaches for them reverently. In an instant, she's experiencing God in boot form. She smooths her fingers over the buttery leather, embroidered, quilted, fringed. They even have Cuban heels. Made by the finest cobbler in Paris, Rogers says as he eyes the boots. I've been chasing the rogue for on three months now, and he always manages to find vessels that fit his boots. He is surprisingly devoted to his footwear. A man after my own heart, Cat says. She releases a small, thrilled squeal. She's gotten a better look at the embroidery and has discovered that it's all little skulls and crossbones. She kicks off her shoes, hikes up her skirts, and begins yanking the pirate's boots up over her black stockinged legs. Rogers blushes and lifts an eyebrow. But we're not here for the boots, if you recall. Cat grins sheepishly as she hands him the dustbuster and shows him how to open it. The corpse dust in the chamber is faintly sparkly, as if Sutash and gold braid had been pulverized along with bone and skin. Rogers tips it all out onto the floor, smooths it into a tortilla shape, then begins drawing patterns in it. There's the glow of magic, casting Rogers' face into shadow. He's close. Rogers' face is painted with concern. He looks around the bar. Closer than... There's the sound of glass breaking, then the feeling of cold air and a low laugh. I like you, Navy. Always a step behind. Cat whirls. Jeff is standing right behind them. Pirate Jeff, with a killer French accent. He looks amazingly evil. Or is that just the ham's sign flashing behind him, giving him a red halo? While Cat and friends were smoking out and eating curly fries, Pirate Jeff was obviously knocking over a goodwill. He's wearing a swirling black trench coat, a ruffled gold lame shirt unbuttoned to the navel, and a whole costume jewelry box of glittering trinkets. Evil looks good on Jeff, Cat is surprised to realize. When she gets her Jeff back, she'll insist that he wear pale foundation and face paint and eyeliner more often. That is, if she gets him back, because even though he looks fantastic... He's still evil. This becomes chillingly clear when he looks at her, his eyes daggers of malevolent ice. Ag! He sneers, arching an eyebrow. 
You have stolen my boots. And with one bald fist, he smacks her across the face. He's so quick she doesn't see it coming. She tumbles backward, world spinning. She hears Brady launch himself at Pirate Jeff with a mosh pit holler. He's a black flag blur of testosterone and ham's fumes. When she can finally focus again, she's on her hands and knees, jaw aching. And Jeff is kicking the shit out of Brady. This obviously astonishes Brady no end, because his eyes are wide and confused as he clumsily tries to defend against Pirate Jeff's super-fast attacks. Pirate Jeff has got moves, and they're dirty moves. Kicks to the inside of the knee, hand chops to the windpipe, fingernails to the eyelids. Brady's on the floor moaning in about two seconds flat. That's when the gut-kicking commences. Cat scrambles to her feet, fighting dizziness, grasping desperately for Jeff's hand, trying to keep him, or at least the demon possessing him, from rupturing her boyfriend's internal organs. When her hand touches Jeff's, she feels Jeff's consciousness, distant and anxious but full of purpose. The boots, Cat! Pirate Jeff wrenches his hand away from her grasping and is about to clock her again when Rogers seizes him from behind. The warlock seizes Pirate Jeff's head between his hands in a vice grip and begins muttering spells. The air glows blue and gold around them. It's clear that the warlock expects this to result in some pretty spectacular pirate subduing. But Pirate Jeff just smiles secretly, and with an easy backward jerk of his elbows, knocks the warlock to the ground. Rogers lands with a whoof, eyes astonished. How could it be? No one could withstand such an attack. Pirate Jeff whirls, lips pursed in an elegant sneer. But you see, I am protected. Pirate Jeff reaches over, grabs a handful of Cat's hair, gives her a good mean shake. The Ag, she has dominion over the souls of all seafaring men. A man she respect and love, he is protected by her. Your spells are nothing against her power. Roger's eyes narrow. You know see, warlock, says Pirate Jeff. She is no kindly maiden witch, helping you out of decent respect for your craft. This is a Ag. Rogers looks at Cat, aghast. You? I've never much liked that term, Cat says, struggling against Pirate Jeff's grasp. I prefer a gay man in a woman's body. Then that's why you came back, Rogers nods, not taking his eyes off the pirate. A hag sent us here, Pirate Jeff begins. And a hag can send us back, the warlock completes. A hag can send me back, Pirate Jeff clarifies. All right, leaving aside the fact that I don't like being called a hag, Cat says, what makes you think I'm going to help you? There is the flash of silver, and suddenly something cold and sharp is pressing against her throat. A Ginsu knife, another acquisition from goodwill, no doubt. There's this, the pirate whispers in her ear, sending shivers down her spine. If you hurt her, she'll never send us back, Rogers barks. Cat can see that there is concern in his eyes. How sweet. She would send him a mosh note with little sparkle pen hearts on it if there weren't a knife pressed against her jugular. She does not have to. I may not be un home magique, but I know her blood can be used, Pirate Jeff says. I offer you a deal. With her blood, you can work the magic that will return us both to our own time. We will call a truce to pursue our mutual goal. Once we have returned, our game of cat and mouse can resume. You'd have to kill her, the warlock speaks through clenched teeth. I will have none of it, you murdering fiend. Ah, but if it is a fait accompli... Pirate Jeff says, and Cat feels the knife dig into her flesh. He's making the move that will open her throat. She makes a high sound of panic, seizes his wrist with both hands, feels Jeff, her Jeff, struggling against the pirate for all he's worth. God damn it, Cat! Her Jeff screeches within her mind. The boots! I told you the boots!
Images flash in her mind, images scavenged from the consciousness of the pirate. Cat suddenly understands. She lifts her foot, taps the toe smartly on the floor. This depresses a secret button that only the pirate knows is there. A stiletto shoots from the heel. With a cry, she buries this in Pirate Jeff's shin. Pirate Jeff howls, and inside him, her Jeff howls too. But it's enough. His grasp slackens enough that she can twist out from under the knife. There is a deep, bleeding scratch under her jawline. She feels warm blood trickling down along her throat between her breasts. Stingy, but not lethal. Pirate Jeff recovers quickly and is grasping for her, but now the warlock is on his feet, launching himself in a flying tackle. Warlock and pirate go down together, rolling on the beer-sticky floor, yelling insults. Barbarous body-stealing rogue! Bonsi navy dog! And at that moment, Cat suddenly remembers something the pirate said. The Ag, she has dominion over the souls of all seafaring men. It's time to start dominating, Cat thinks. All right, you two, cut it out! She issues the command in a thundering voice, putting all her power into the words. She's amazed at the sudden echoing resonance of her own voice, of the glow that surrounds her, whipping her hair and skirts into froth like something out of a steamy Nyx video. Pirate and warlock cease their grappling, look up at her with astonishment. Ah, misery, the pirate mutters, and the tone of defeat in his voice makes her realize that she's got him and he knows it. She straightens, lifting her chin, enjoying the surge of power. The astonishment on Roger's face turns to delight. I humbly thank you, madam, he says, bowing his head. And now, by your leave, I will do what I have come to do. Capture Captain Flaneur for once and for all. Make it so, my good man. Cat lifts a hand and speaks haughtily, enjoying her sudden queenly hagdom. But her enjoyment of the play-acting turns to horror, as Rogers reaches into his coat and pulls out the jeweled thing she saw him use to scare off the pirate before. Now she sees what it is. It is a jeweled, sharp dagger. What the hell are you doing? She says in alarm. To capture Captain Flaneur, I have to stab his vessel through the heart. Rogers says with all of the casualness of, I have to shampoo his hair, or I have to trim his nails. You mean Jeff? Cat screeches. When the warlock says nothing, Cat shakes her head. That is so not cool. Captain Flaneur resides in the heart of his victim. If the enchanted steel of this dagger pierces the heart, Captain Flaneur will be imprisoned in it. Which still leaves my best friend Jeff with a dagger in his heart. She lifts her chin again, assumes her most commanding and imperious tone. Thou shalt not do it, thou varlet. I, I must, Roger says. If I must match arts with you, I shall, Mistress Hag. He raises his hand in the Ozzy Osbourne devil sign again, and Cat isn't sure whether to assume a karate stance or cross her wrists like Wonder Woman. Isn't there any other way? Not here. Not in this time, this place, Rogers says. Perhaps if I got him back to Maryland to a gathering of elder warlocks, but there is no time. Captain Flaneur can reside in a body only thirteen cursed hours, and by my reckoning it has already been eleven. I must take him now while he is still attached to this body. At that moment, Brady stirs, moaning. Jesus, fuck me, Christ, are his first words. What the hell got into your homo, dude? Both Cat and Rogers look at Brady with equal disdain. Then, suddenly, an idea comes all over Cat and makes her smile. Well, what if I gave you an extra 13 hours to work with? She says. Transferring the pirate into Brady's body isn't hard. Cat has dominion over the souls of all seafaring men, after all. And all she has to do is lay one hand on Jeff's body and one hand on Brady's hand. It's like a Vulcan mind meld. 
They make sure Brady is unconscious before this process commences. Rogers seems more than pleased to do the job of knocking him back out with one eloquently barked magical command. Cat bends over Jeff as he wakes. God, what did I do last night? He groans, lifting a hand to his aching head. You don't want to know, Cat says. Suffice it to say, it involved a pirate, curly fries, and magic. Cat, you're all bloody! Jeff is looking at her throat with horror. Then he moves, winces, and looks down at his own leg. And I'm bloody, too! And I'm dressed like... Adam Ant! Madam Hag! Rogers interjects respectfully. Dawn approaches rapidly. Who's he? Jeff says, looking the warlock up and down. And what is he doing with Brady? Cat sees that Rogers has used rope from the wall to truss Brady up fifteen ways till Sunday. The warlock's got away with knots, Cat notices with a pleasant shiver. All that navy training. Jeff, this is Lieutenant John Rogers, warlock first class, she says. He's taking Brady to Maryland in 1768 to get a pirate out of his heart. Oh, Jeff says. She goes over to where the warlock is standing. He looks down at Brady, who is struggling and making noises of muffled outrage. I can send him back when the elder warlocks are done with him, he says. Cat shrugs diffidently. Whatever, she says. I'm going to San Francisco. And me, Rogers ventures shyly. You can summon me back any time you like. A hag has dominion over the life of all seafaring men. She leans forward and brushes his ear with her lips. I'll feed you oranges, she whispers. Rogers blushes furiously. He takes her hand and presses his lips to the back, letting them linger on her skin a long time. When Rogers and Brady are gone in a shower of sparkly magic, Jeff nods approvingly. He's cute, Jeff says, and the military is a fine profession. We'll see, Cat says. San Francisco first. Jeff takes her hand, squeezes it. Thanks. She squeezes his hand in return, lays her head on his shoulder. That's what hags are for, she thinks. And welcome back. I hope you had fun with this one. I've got to say there's nothing quite like time-traveling, body-thieving pirates. Except, of course, warlock contemporaries of a dope-smoking General George Washington. Well, in God we trust. Let's do our own version of time travel, sans pina coladas, and hit the feedback for episode 91, Leah Bobbitt's Three Days and Nights in Lord Dark Drake's Hall, all about a woman soldier held captive behind enemy lines a distinct interest in human suffering, and the third story of Anne Leckie Month. Reaction to this one was a bit mixed, which honestly kind of surprised me. Several people suggested it felt like the final few chapters in a longer story, but Scattercat replied to those comments saying, Why is sounds like part of a larger story always leveled as a criticism? That's one of the highest compliments I can pay to a story personally. Unfinished is another thing, but this story most definitely completed its relevant arcs. And Brennan said, I think I would have liked to get more detail on what Stoneburn and the lieutenant stole from Lord Darkdrake. It was vague enough that I didn't really grok the protagonist's reaction to that revelation, so I didn't really end up seeing the whole who-do-I-trust aspect as clearly as I was supposed to get. And Unblinking said, Good to see a female warrior protagonist taken seriously, as in a believable warrior instead of a funny chainmail bikini tail. The gray areas and interaction felt very real. I did find it hard to believe the easy disabling of the second guard after the bath. You should have seen his fellow get killed, so why wasn't he more ready? And her skill with throwing knives aside, the knife she stole did not seem to be intended as a throwing knife. I've never thrown a knife before, but from what I understand, throwing knives are generally designed to be thrown with certain weight balances and such. Thank you for those comments. That's all the feedback we have for this week. Remember, there's still a couple weeks to sign up at our forums at forum.escapeartist.net for the Podcastle Flash Fiction Contest, so if you haven't entered already, get to it. 
That's all we have for this week. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle tell you another story. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and clicking our PayPal button to donate. It may not get our authors to San Francisco to become the dominatrixes they've always dreamed of being, but it does help pay them, and it enables us to bring you a new story every week without anyone having to go all black flag mosh pit on anyone's ass. We'll be back in a week with our big 100th episode anniversary bash. So lace up those boots, rock and roll all night and party every day, remember to never get between a witch and her lamb's wool, and we'll see you all next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Adam Ant said, I like being infamous. It's safe being a cult. <laughs>